Welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Matthew, and I hope through this message you find truth, encouragement, and that it helps you grow as a disciple of Christ. Enjoy the message. Good morning. If you didn't hear, my name is Stephen. I'm really glad you decided to join us. And um, you're joining us in week two of a series entitled, His Name Shall Be Called. And as we're uh, looking through this series, we're looking at four names that Jesus was called by the prophet Isaiah 800 years before he was born. You've probably heard this famous passage, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as beautiful as the passage is, and as many times as we've heard it read or we've seen it written on something pretty, what does it mean? And so what we're doing throughout this series is we're looking at each of the four names and we're asking ourselves three questions. What does the name mean? How did Jesus fulfill it? And why is it good for us today? So last week, we looked at the first one, wonderful counselor. And what it doesn't mean is that Jesus is your really good therapist. What it does mean is that Jesus is wonderful, full of supernatural power, and that Jesus is counselor, the provider of direction and guidance for our lives. And so last week, we summed it up by saying this. Jesus, as wonderful counselor, means that he is the supernatural provider of power and direction for our lives. We saw Christ fulfill this through works of wonders and miracles. We saw Christ through, uh, fulfill this by being the wise teacher who could uh, empathize and sympathize with us because he went through what we went through and he has authority when he teaches us. So now, if you need wisdom, ask him. If you need power, he provides it. This is what we have in Jesus. This was his mission. So today, we transition into name number two, Mighty God. Translated, the term Mighty God is El Gabor, which is kind of a fun word to say. So we're going to look back in, uh, we're actually going to look back in time from when Isaiah was written, and we're going to look ahead, and we're going to see this term used throughout the scriptures, and it'll give us a better understanding for what it means that Jesus was El Gabor, that Jesus was the mighty God. The first time, well, not the first time, the first verse that we're going to look at uh, that uses this same term was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Here's what he says in Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 17. And what I want to do with these first few verses is just give you an idea of how this term is used in the Bible. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Whenever you see the term outstretched arm in the scriptures, it's referring to Jesus. He's the outstretched arm of God. God come to earth. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, El Gabor, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed. This was the prophet Jeremiah who wrote a little bit after Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah uses the same term and he's building this idea of how good this God is. 
But it wasn't just that prophet. There was another prophet, a guy by the name of Moses, who was uh, well, well before the prophet Isaiah. And uh, one time, Moses was writing, and this is what he writes in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Imperative for them to understand as they were living in a culture surrounded by other people serving other gods who were saying, our God is just like your God. And Moses reminds them, no, he's not. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. And look at the terms they use to describe. He's the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Some of you grew up in church singing, our God is an awesome God. Part of, out of this text who is not partial, this God is, and he takes no bribe. He's not like every other God. He's different than every other God. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's great, he's mighty, and he's awesome. Or as Isaiah would say, El Gabor, he is the mighty God, the mighty God. And there's another place where this term is used. And this time, it was the angel of the Lord appearing to a judge. Now, if you're not familiar with this term judge as it relates to the Bible, it's not like a judge nowadays. A judge was a leader of state, leader of the Israelites, who didn't quite have the political authority of a king, nor the spiritual authority of a prophet, but had kind of a combination of the two. And these judges would lead the children of Israel for periods of time, um, defeating enemies and bringing the children into freedom. And so we looked at one last week, and this week we look at another one. This guy's name is Gideon. And in Judges chapter 6, we see the angel of the Lord show up to Gideon. Now, in our story last week, we also saw the angel of the Lord show up. And this angel of the Lord said that his name was Wonderful. That's why we talked about it last week, Wonderful Counselor. This angel of the Lord is actually a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ before his incarnation. And so Jesus, that's a sentence right there. So the angel of the Lord shows up again, this time to Gideon. Here's the conversation. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites are the enemy. They're the opposition. They're the ones who are enslaving Israel. They're stealing their crops. Uh, times are not great right now for Israel. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now this time, the angel's using the term mighty here to describe not himself, not Jesus, not God, but an individual. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, hold up. Gideon's going to give four reasons why God isn't working, why God isn't moving, why this probably isn't God, while it's a, why it's a bad idea for God to use him. Maybe some of these reasons relate to you on why you would think God isn't moving right now, God isn't real, uh, God would never use me. Here's Gideon's excuses. Two of them are corporate, two of them are personal. His first one is this, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? If God was real, if God is real, why are bad things happening? Look around, God must not be real. That's his first reason. Second one, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? He's saying, we haven't seen a fresh move of God. All we're doing is hearing stories of what he used to do, but he's not doing anything now. Where's he at? 
It's a second reason. But now the Lord has forsaken us. And maybe that's how you feel, like God's turned his back. And he's given us into the land of Midian. Or maybe you feel like the bad thing is happening because you did something to deserve it. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might, mighty, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, here's his two excuses. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Four excuses. Bad things are happening. God must not be here. His miracles, maybe they used to happen, but they don't happen now. My family, my background uh, is not sufficient for me to be a hero. Or um, personally, Gideon's saying, I'm just weak. I can't do this. And to all four excuses, God gives one answer. Go, I am with you. Go in this might of yours, I am with you. So what? What does this term mean? What is this term, mighty God, El Gabor? We've seen it in Moses. We saw it in Isaiah. We saw it through Gideon. We see it in Jeremiah. What does it mean? So that's our first question. What is the term? What does the name mighty God mean? Here's what it means. It means champion or hero, valiant hero or ultimate champion. I watched a lot of fake wrestling growing up. Anyone else? Okay, back when we could still call it WWF. And as I would watch this fake wrestling, my older brother and my older cousin and I started, of course, our own little wrestling circuit in our family. And we had a belt that my cousin got for Christmas, a championship belt. And that championship belt would go from, uh, to whomever had the, was the current champion. And here's what was always true. The champion was never the champion for very long uh, because we would wait till the champion was asleep. And then as soon as they would wake up from their nap, we would hop on them and pin them before they knew what was going on. This was before we instituted a constitution of the laws and the rules on how the championships could pass from one person to the next. Now, being the smallest of the three, I was rarely the champion. And when I was the champion, it felt incredible, but my reign never lasted very long bitter to this day. I think I could beat them up both now, though. Don't tell them. A champion is only a champion because they defeat something. A hero is only a hero because the circumstances were bad and they stood up when no one else would. And so Gideon became a champion because he defeated the Midianites and he came out of obscurity. And there were all of those reasons why it shouldn't have been him, but it was him and God used him in the might of his and he won. So an El Gabor is a champion, a hero. Now, much later in the scriptures, much later, so Isaiah is written 800 years later, Jesus comes 60 years after that, there's a writer no one actually really knows who the writer is. It's known as the book of Hebrews. And in one section, this guy is writing about the heroes or the champions of the faith. And he says this. He says, what more can I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, who we just talked about, 
Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He's just going through the list of legends. He's going through the list of heroes and champions. And these heroes and champions, we're going to read of their feats here in a second. What they did have in common is that they brought temporary freedom and temporary salvation to the people of Israel. They were champions for a moment, but then even the mightiest of them eventually fell. But they did secure a victory, a championship for a season. And so the writer is saying, look at all the stories of these old champions. In the section that we're looking at, we just pulled an excerpt out, list even more of them. It's reminding us that every champion in the Old Testament, every story of Moses and Samuel and all of the kings and all of the prophets and all of the judges, they were all pointing to something better, pointing to something greater, the ultimate champion. Look at what these champions did, though. I mean, this is an impressive resume. It says, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put armies, foreign armies, to flight. These guys were not weak. And all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. All of these, they say, even though they did all of those things, they still couldn't deliver the ultimate promise. They still weren't El Gabor enough. They weren't mighty fully. What does it mean that Jesus is mighty God? What does it mean that he is El Gabor? It means he is the champion who delivered to us a victory that can never be taken away. It means he's the champion who came and conquered an enemy who cannot rise back up in victory. It means he is the champion who once and for all gets to wear the belt and it will not be taken from him. In fact, you can go back and you can look at the list and you can see how Jesus was a greater champion than all of them. It says of them, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. Jesus conquered the kingdom of Satan and then established his own kingdom. They enforced justice. Jesus brought eternal divine justice to earth. They obtained promises. Jesus obtained the ultimate promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter three, that one day God would send one who would defeat the enemy. Jesus did. They stopped the mouths of lions. One of the names of Jesus is the lion. Jesus stops the roaring lion the devil who's out to destroy us. They quenched the power of fire. Jesus faced the fire of the divine wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. They escaped the edge of the sword. Jesus was pierced with the sword, but he rose victorious over it. They were made strong out of their weakness. Jesus, in his strength, made himself weak so that we could be strong. They became mighty in war. No one was mightier than Christ and the victory that he won on the cross. They put foreign armies to flight. He put the enemy to flight. And through all of this, he provided something better to us. What? In doctrinal terms, we call it the new covenant. It was the thing that was better 
than what all of the other champions, all of the Old Testament champions were fighting for. So they fought and they secured a salvation, a freedom that lasted for a little while. But then somebody else would come in and defeat the champion or the champion would go uh, grow old and he would die and, and pass away and then a new champion would rise up and it was this cycle over and over and over. But Jesus came to deliver once and for all a victory. And like I said at the beginning, you're only a champion if you defeat something. You're not a champion just because you make yourself champion. You have to win something. What did Jesus defeat? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a picture of what he defeated, starting in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, that's Jesus who is uh, becoming flesh, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He delivered to us the ultimate victory. Here, he says it was victory over death. It was victory over sin. In Colossians 2, we're told that he disarmed the powers of this world. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He delivered to us victory. Now, when I was growing up and I got victory over my brother or my cousin, I would get a belt. When Jesus delivered ultimate victory, what do we get? Jesus is champion, yes. What does the name mean? It means champion. How did Jesus fulfill it? By going to the cross and being victorious over all of those things that I just explained. Death, sin, the world, the devil. But what does that deliver to us? Why is it good for us today? I'm gonna give you three things here. Three things that Jesus' ultimate victory delivered to you and I. The first is eternal life. Perhaps you have a fear of death, wondering what happens after all of this. What is next? Jesus delivered to you and I a permanent victory in eternal life. Life with him forever. That means as Christians, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be scared of what happens next when this life ends. Because through Jesus, we have eternal life. He gave it to us when he defeated death. Eternal life is not something that we earn. It's not something that if we work really hard, that somebody will bestow upon us. Eternal life is not a birthright. It's not an inheritance um, that your parents can pass down to you. Eternal life isn't because you grew up in church or America. Eternal life isn't just um, something that everybody gets. No, eternal life is a gift that God gives us at Christmas through his son, Jesus. Eternal life is secured only one way. Admitting sin, believing in the story of the cross, and committing our lives to Jesus Christ. 
That's where eternal life comes from. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you thought your eternal life was just because you were a good person? It's not. Have you thought eternal life is uh, something that you're going to earn? You can't. Eternal life comes one way. Belief in Christ's finished work on the cross. Do not leave today wondering if you have eternal life. Secondly, the second thing that he delivers to us is what I'll call a new life. Now, maybe you think, well, some of you are out there and you're like, they're really the same thing, this eternal life and the new life. Well, for our terminology, we're going to say the second thing that Jesus delivers to us is a new life. Eternal life being that which we obtain post our death here on earth. New life being something that starts right now. Right now. Jesus' victory over sin delivers to you and I new life. Paul says it this way. You have been made new. He doesn't say you're kind of new and you're kind of old. He doesn't say you will be made new. He says right now in Christ, you've been made new. In another section, he says your new life is now hidden in Christ. You're enclosed in Christ. You've been made new. You've been made new. If you're in Jesus, you're not who you once were. You've been given a new nature, which means you no longer possess the old nature. It's one nature, a new nature that's been given to you. Now, some of you right now, you're thinking, yeah, but what happens if I sin? Well, what what happens if I sin? Well, that's a good question. What happens if you sin and you're new in Christ? What happens? You'll probably hurt somebody. There'll probably be practical ramifications that you'll face on this earth. It'll probably feel bad. It might actually feel good for a while. That'll happen. Here's what doesn't happen when you sin. I'll use an example. My daughter, Reagan, when she sins against me, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but when she messes up, two things that are not true. First, it doesn't change that she's my daughter. And secondly, I don't love her any less. And so when she messes up, she's still my daughter. And I still love her the same. The terminology in scripture used to describe our relationship with God is father-child, I think, for these reasons. Parent-child. So when you sin, let me tell you what doesn't happen. It doesn't change the fact that you've been made new. And it doesn't separate you from your heavenly father. Say, ah, but what of repentance? What of confession? Have you ever confessed sin to another person? You probably have. You know what it feels? Liberating. Liberating, as long as they protect it. (laughs) Otherwise, it feels horrible. Confessing to other people is one of the processes that God uses for us um, to walk in our freedom. You say, well, what of repentance? Isn't that between me and God? And, and, and every time I sin, don't I have to go and repent again and seek forgiveness again and all of these types of things? You were forgiven once on the cross 
when you received it then, once and for all. You don't have to run back and say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You say, oh, so Christians shouldn't repent? No, I repent whenever I mess up. You know why? Because I want to say to my Father in heaven that I love, gosh, I'm so sorry. I hate this, and I want to be back. I don't repent so that he'll love me again. I repent because he already does love me, and I just want to clear the air with him. You see the difference in those two? Some of us, we, we sin, but we don't realize that we're made new, and so we run back to God, and we think we have to go through the whole process and the whole cycle all over again. And the enemy has a trick to make us feel shameful and guilty, which is why Paul wrote, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've been made new. Jesus' victory over sin made you new, fully, completely, right now. You've been given a new life. Some of you are thinking, ah, this sounds like cheap grace. This sounds unfair. Let me tell you the connection between fairness and the gospel, because this is an important thing for us to understand. And we need to know how fairness and the gospel, how they weave together and how they interact so that we might have proper doctrine. So here's fairness and here's the gospel. This is how they interact. They don't. If you're trying to understand the gospel or grace through any element of fairness, then you're not understanding the gospel. If you're trying to understand fairness and the gospel and you're trying to make them fit together through your mind, then it's not the gospel that you're after. Fairness and the gospel never intersect. All of the gospel is completely unfair. It is completely unmerited. It is a gift of God's grace given to you, making you new. It's a victory that Christ secured once and for all. The gift of the new life that he's given you. It's a victory that's ultimately secured. It can't be taken. You've been made new. If this doesn't make you feel free, I'm still not connecting. You say, yeah, but I know people who say that they're Christians and they just keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning. I said I was a Christian, and I just, you know, like, you, you're like, oh, I'm a Christian, and you keep sitting and sitting, and you're thinking, like, I don't, I don't know. How do I know if it's real or not? How do I know? First off, most of the time, if you're asking the question, how do you know if it's real, it's probably real. Because the scripture tells us that there's those who seek God and there's those who don't. And so if you're asking it's real, it's probably an indication that it's real because you're seeking God. You say, well, what if people who say that they're a Christian, but um, they keep on sinning? On one hand, it's probably none of your business. You say, yeah, but there's this uh, parts of the Bible that, you know, we're to instruct and correct people uh, if they're caught up in sin and we're supposed to love them and all that stuff. You absolutely are. And what you're supposed to do is just continue to present to them the love of Jesus and let it change them. Just present the love of Jesus to them and let it change them. Why? Because only the gospel, only the love of Jesus is what changes us. So just present the love of Jesus to them if they keep on sending and let it change them. 
I've said this before. I could try and run from God right now. I could. But it would be a fool's errand. Why? Because I know that someday down the road, if I run from God now, it's just going to mean that I'm going to be on my face crying out to him. as he lovingly brings me back to him. You've been made new in Jesus if you've embraced eternal life. Walk in your newness. There's no shame, there's no guilt, and there's no condemnation. Christ's ultimate victory gave you that. Third thing, eternal life, new life, and a powerful life. Paul says it this way, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Another author says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Another way, Paul says it, you are more than conquerors, you're champion. You're not the ultimate El Gabor. Jesus was the ultimate El Gabor. But what's interesting is all of the Old Testament prophets are given all of this high esteem, but there are um, verses over and over in the New Testament that tell us that we have something that those Old Testament prophets didn't have. And so all of those guys who quenched the fire and uh, faced the sword and did all of those things, they did incredible, mighty, great things. We have something that they didn't even have. We get a clearer picture of the gospel than they did, and we get the Holy Spirit. You and I, now, in Christ, walk and live a powerful life. The might of God now dwells in you. In you. A couple of ways this plays itself out. You have the full armor of God to resist the devil's attacks. You have the power of Christ in you to resist temptation. You have the strength of Christ to endure every situation. You have the hope of Christ to see life and death differently. You have the mighty God on your side to walk in power and victory. You have been given a powerful life now. Paul says power to break strongholds. We could reread the Ephesians passage because what the mighty warriors of old did, that same power is in you to walk a powerful life in Christ. Why? Because Jesus as champion delivered to you a victory that cannot be taken away. So before we leave today, let me ask you, have you embraced eternal life in Christ? You have to start there. Are you walking a new life? Or do you still carry shame, guilt, and condemnation? Are you still trying to earn your eternal life that was already given? Stop. It's so tiring. It's so much better to just receive the new life. Are you walking in the power of the might of God in you? That's what Jesus' victory delivered. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, I want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to join us for one of our services, Sunday, 10 a.m. in the Levis Commons Movie Theater. I would also like to invite you to our Christmas Eve service at the barn. 
For more information, you can visit experienceredemption.com forward slash the barn. Have a great week.